All right, well, welcome back to The Apologetics of Jesus and Paul. This is session three, and I'm Joel Sedeckes, and um, please have your Bible ready, but even if you don't, we are going to have the scripture up on the screen here, but um, certainly helpful to have your own copy of the Word uh, in front of you and uh, maybe a notebook, something to take down some notes with. Um, The benefit of having your Bible out is that you can actually test for yourself what we're talking about and make sure that the text on the screen matches the text that, uh, that you know, make sure it's accurate, that the Lord actually revealed those words, um, that the ones that you see on the screen. Okay, so we're doing Apologetics of Jesus and Paul, Session 3, presented by the Think Institute. This is a Hammer and Anvil cohort course. And um, as we go right now, there are a number of guys backstage waiting to um, waiting for the teaching portion and then we're going to bring them all out for a Q&A time at the end. These are guys who are taking the course through the Hammer and Anvil Society. You can learn more about the Think Institute and the Hammer and Anvil Society simply by going to thethink.institute. All right. Today's encounter, apologetic encounter of Jesus, I'm titling Beelzebul's Fool. Another title for this might be Beelzebul's Tool, which I like better because I don't even like um, putting the word fool there in the question um, because Jesus, of course, is not a fool. Jesus is the exact opposite of a fool, but he's he's being accused today of something pretty dastardly, pretty nefarious. Uh, he's being accused of being a fool for the devil, and um, we're going to see how he deals with that accusation as we go. But our passage today is Matthew 12, 22 through 30. Matthew chapter 12, verses 22 through 30. Also, I mentioned this to the guys a little bit earlier. I do have a little bit of a uh, hay fever season right now, so I'm going to be drinking a lot of water, and hopefully we'll not have to hack up a lung as we go. All right, so here's a synopsis of our story. After Jesus heals a demonized man, or you might say demon-possessed, Pharisees accuse him of operating by Satan's power. Jesus exposes their absurdity and turns their accusation around on them. And then he reveals his messianic identity, that he is the Messiah, and he gives them an ultimatum. An ultimatum that uh, you are not going to want to miss. Um, It is really powerful what he says. Okay, the first part of the story opens up with a healing. This is in verses 22 and 23. Let's read. Then a demon-possessed man, who was blind and unable to see, unable to speak, was brought to him. He healed him so that the man could both speak and see. All the crowds were astounded and said, Could this be the son of David? Okay, what's going on here? So a man is brought to Jesus. And that's not unusual. People are bringing sick and uh, possessed, demonized people to Jesus all throughout the Gospels. But this one is going to prove to be very important um, because 
of this man's condition. So elsewhere, Jesus heals a woman, for example, who has an issue of blood and an internal uh, bleeding um, condition. Um, sometimes he heals a man. Uh, last week, in last session, we looked at Jesus healing a man who had a shriveled hand. But this man is actually possessed by a demon. Now, when we say possessed, the Greek word there, um, it's really translated best probably demonized. He's plagued by a demon. He is um, he's harassed by this demon. And, and to a certain degree, he's controlled by this demon. That's kind of where we get this idea of demon possessed. Um, and, and the demon has made him blind and mute. He can't see and he can't speak. So Jesus immediately heals the man. Now, in order to heal a man who's demon-possessed, what do you have to do? You have to cast out the demon. So Jesus exercises the demon, casts out the demon, exorcise, not exercise. He's not doing calist- making the demon do calisthenics. He's, he's exorcising, meaning he's driving out the demon. And he is, um, and, and then the man who no longer has the demon can now see where he couldn't see before and he can speak. And people make this very interesting. The crowd makes this interesting conclusion. They say, could this be the son of David? Now, depending on what Bible you're reading, the the commentary there, like let's say you have an ESV study Bible. The the commentary in the ESV study Bible are going to be different um, than uh, like the way that the CSB, for example, translates it. So in the... Um, in the ESV Bible, it actually, in the study Bible, in the notes, it says that Jesus, they're, they're basically asking this question, like they can't believe that he's the son of David because David was this mighty conqueror. And yet here Jesus is, and he is, um, calm, peaceful, gentle, uh, more like a lamb than a lion. And so the interpretation there is, well, this can't be the son of David. Okay. And actually the NASB 95 translates, um, this verse, uh, so it's something along the lines of this isn't, this couldn't be the son of David, could it? Um, which again, sort of captures that negative expectation. Like, like, um, he's too gentle. He doesn't fit the mold. He doesn't, uh, this isn't what we expect. I actually don't interpret it this way. I actually think that it's the very fact that Jesus performs an exorcism that makes the crowd associate him with David and ask if he could be the son of David. In other words, he could be the Messiah, the descendant of David who's going to rule over the the kingdom, sit on the throne for all eternity. But what is it about an exorcism that would make them think this could be the son of David? Well, exorcisms were basically unheard of in the Old Testament period. However, you, you you just don't see them. However, there is one instance where an evil spirit was plaguing a king and he was the spirit was was driven out and the king had found relief through um it was an exorcism but it was music and um the music was played by King David and the king was King Saul this of course was before David was king so I'm calling him um King David, but that's an anachronism. Uh, he wasn't king yet. But we find this in 1 Samuel 16, 14 through 23. So I I have to think that 
um, that that probably factored into people's expectations that the Messiah would be a son of David, a descendant of David, and uh, David could perform exorcisms, and um, and and so it would make sense that makes sense that the son of David could as well, but um, you know th- there was something else going on as well, sort of in the background, by the Second Temple period or the the time of Jesus, this the first century, and you know basically in between the return from exile and uh, and the time of Jesus, it was expected that the Messiah would exercise demons, and um, if you take a look at Isaiah twenty nine eighteen and thirty five verse five, there's something in particular about this man's ailments that really would have gotten people's attention. And made them say, "Hey, this could be the Messiah. We could be entering the the Messianic age," and and the reason why is because Isaiah specifically prophesied that there would come this age of blessing, which be, became associated, I believe, with the Messianic age, the age of the Messiah. And in that age, the deaf or the uh, the mute would speak, the deaf would hear, and the blind would be able to see. And um, I, I think all three of those are mentioned. You can look that up yourself. But what Jesus is doing here is he's fulfilling the prophecies that Isaiah had made about the Messianic era. He's also doing the very thing that David had done, driving out an evil spirit that was plaguing a man. So you can really see why people are drawing these conclusions. That's why I think the proper interpretation here is people are seeing the exorcism and they're going, wow, this might very well be the son of David. So, you know, you can let me know what you think about that. But it, what's very clear is that whatever they thought, everyone could see that someone here was working against Satan. Now, the reason why they thought this, why they knew this, is because this wasn't just a healing. It was an exorcism. Somebody had driven out Jesus had driven out a demon he was he was driving back um, think about an army you know driving back an opposing army so that the opposing army loses ground Jesus has taken ground away from Satan here he has um, he has stolen from Satan so this is a victory this isn't just the same thing you know sometimes people say like well couldn't Satan, you know, heal a guy's broken back maybe, or like, uh, couldn't Satan, um, you know, maybe perform a, 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 a light, you know, you think about these shamans in the, in Guatemala or something like that in the rainforest. It's like, well, can't they perform healings? You know, perhaps, uh, it's also possible that, that the sickness that they're healing was demonically, um, uh, you know, inflicted in the first place. And then they sort of uh, push back the sickness and grant some relief in order to um, sort of make it seem like they have the power to heal. That's kind of what the Pharisees are accusing Jesus of here. But what's different is that this man, first of all, it's a very dramatic healing. We're not just talking about a fever going away. Uh, This is a blind man. You know, this is a mute man. And now he can see, now he can speak. So it's a very dramatic healing. But it's also very clear that the demon is out of this guy. That's not up for debate. So this isn't just like, hey, the guy was healed, um, but he's, he's uh, in a sense, he's given new life. 
Uh, I'm not saying he was fully born again here from a, you know, the way we understand it from John three. Um, but it's clearly Satan being pushed back. Satan is losing ground. That much is very clear. So everyone could see that someone was working against Satan. So the Pharisees, they can't deny that. So what do they do? They accuse Jesus. And the accusation that they come up with here is really insidious. I mean, it is really just, um, just evil, just wicked. So look what they accuse him of in verse 24. When the Pharisees heard this, they said, this man drives out demons only by Beelzebul, the ruler of demons. And if you go back and look in the original language, it says, this man does not drive out demons unless he's doing it by Beelzebul, the ruler of demons. In other words, we're not even granting that this happened unless we say, unless we attribute it to Satan. Now, you're like, well, wait, Beelzebul, that, well, who's Beelzebul? And you know how does Satan factor in here? Because Beelzebul and Satan are two different names. What are we talking about? So Beelzebul is a phrase, it's a, a name that means master of the house. And it's derived from the word Baal. Yes, that Baal. Remember Baal, Baal in the Old Testament? The Israelites were always worshiping Baal. He was the god of fertility. He was the god of crops. And um, just a, a, a nasty... Um, you know, uh, he would send, uh, supposedly he would send rainstorms and, and, uh, cause your crops to grow, which by the way, this is very interesting. Uh, Baal worship actually migrated from Canaan to Greece. And do you know what the Greeks called Baal? Zeus. Zeus is Baal. And, um, in, within a Jewish context though, the, the name Baal had sort of morphed over the years to Biel. And so Beelzebul, uh, Baal means Lord or master. So Beelzebul means master of the house. Um, and and it, it had become a name for Satan. See, here's the interesting thing about the Jewish people. When they returned from exile, the last thing that they wanted to do was to return to idolatry. Prior to exile, they were worshiping Baal left and right. Then they were exiled, they were chastened. And when they came back from exile, they were very careful not to worship Baal, Asherah, you know, these false gods, the, the pagan gods. And um, which is why Christ's enemies are, his opponents are not polytheists or, you know, Baal worshipers. They're Pharisees who are sort of like, you know, ultra Orthodox, like, like ultra super religious. You know what I mean? So... Um, it, it makes sense then that Baal, who they used to worship, their ancestors used to worship, became associated with a demon, actually with Satan, because coming back from exile, they realized, well, we're never going to worship him again. That was a false god. Um, and now we understand that, that it's actually Satan driving that false worship, trying to destroy us. So Beelzebul is derived from Baal, but it's just another name for Satan. And um, when they accuse Jesus of operating under the power of Beelzebul, they're accusing him of a capital offense, a capital crime. Because practicing magic under Satan's power was enough to get you stoned in those days. Do you see what they're doing here? They're trying to get Jesus killed. They're trying to drum up the mob and 
and call Jesus a, a devil worshiper. I mean, do you see how malevolent this is? How, how just utterly pure evil this is? And here's the crazy thing. The reputation stuck because um, in, in later centuries, I'm talking post-Christ, post-70 AD, in later centuries, uh, Jesus was referred to in extra-biblical writings among the Jewish people as a sorcerer. And it's kind of funny. It's like, yeah, he was a. You have to call him a sorcerer because you can't say that he was a miracle worker because that was that would mean that God was on his side. So you have to you have to acknowledge that he did these you know magical things, but you have to call him a sorcerer instead of a miracle worker or Messiah. But here's the apologetic challenge. The apologetic challenge is is this: Are Jesus and his teachings fueled by evil, the very thing he is supposed to oppose? So. Here you got Jesus and his teachings, and it's clear he's coming out as though he's an enemy, an opponent of Satan. The Pharisees, though, are accusing him of being fueled by the very, by the very Satan he's claiming to oppose. I mean, this is dastardly. So that's the accusation. Let's see how Jesus responds. We get Jesus's response in verses 12, uh, 25 through 29. And then after 29, in the last verse, we're going to see he shifts a little bit. So in our first session, I talked about a three-step apologetic approach. We're going to look at the first two steps here. And then we're going to look at the third step because the way Jesus delivers the third step is like the knockout blow to these guys. So we're going to look at the first, the the sort of one-two combination first, and then we'll get into the, the third step at the end. Okay. So here's verses 25 through 27. This is step one of our priest of, of our, but really it's Christ's presuppositional approach. Here's what it says. Knowing their thoughts, he told them, every kingdom divided against itself is headed for destruction and no city or house divided against itself will stand. If Satan drives out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I drive out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons drive them out? For this reason, they will be your judges. Ooh, man, is that good. All right, let's see what Jesus is doing here. So Jesus starts out by um, by mentioning a principle, by citing a principle that they apparently believe, that they apparently agree with. The principle is every kingdom divided against itself is headed for destruction. A house divided against itself cannot stand. A city divided against itself itself cannot stand. Well, how do we know that the Pharisees believed this? Because they never refuted it. They didn't didn't argue with him about this. Um, What Jesus is doing here, this is step one of his argumentation. He's entering their position and he's exposing its absurdity. He's performing, remember that term, that Latin term a reductio ad absurdum. He's reducing their argument to absurdity by taking it to its logical conclusion. And then now he's showing them how their own reasoning actually condemns themselves. Themselves. So he states this principle, which by the way, how are they going to, how are they going to disagree with this principle? Um, no, Jesus, a house divided against itself, itself can stand. I mean, that's absurd on the face of it. And they would be laughed, you know, out of the, public square if they were to say that. So uh, these guys feared the crowds big time. They're not going to 
risk looking like idiots in front of the crowd. So Jesus tells them a principle they have no choice but to agree with. And then he exposes the absurdity of what they're positing. Okay, are you guys really saying that Satan is driving out Satan? Remember, this wasn't just a mere miracle. Not that any miracle is mere. But this wasn't just a healing. This was an exorcism. This is pushing back against Satan. What they're basically accusing Jesus of doing is this. Jesus is, remember those, the magicians that Pharaoh had working in his uh, in his court? So when Moses and Aaron would come to Pharaoh, the uh, uh, Moses and Aaron would perform a miracle and then the, 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 the magi or the, um, the, sages or the whatever they're called you know the wise man of pharaoh they would perform a similar quote-unquote miracle so moses turns the water to blood they turn the water to blood uh aaron's staff becomes a snake their staff becomes a snake and it's like yeah but so couldn't satan perform a false miracle but that's not really a good analogy you know what a better analogy would be it'd be like this if Jesus is working for Satan, but Jesus is casting out Satan, it's not just the equivalent of turning your staff into a snake. It'd be the equivalent of this. Pharaoh's wise men, Pharaoh's magicians, um, going into Pharaoh's palace and taking a sledgehammer and busting down all of the pillars and caving the roof in. Like, that would be absurd, right? I mean, that, that's, in, that's insanity. Um, what's Pharaoh going to do to these guys? He's going to have them executed because they're not just performing a miracle. They're directly defying and opposing and working against Pharaoh. Jesus, if Jesus is casting out demons, that's not just a miracle. He's directly opposing Satan. And no employee could do something like that to their boss and still have a job. You get what I'm saying? On the face of it, it's just absurd. And then Jesus does something really awesome. He he turns their argument around on themselves. Now, the old expression in the old in the old uh, literature, they would say um, the Pharisees find themselves hoist upon their own petard. They're they're strung up by their own uh, I don't know shoelaces. You know, they're they're uh, they're. Um, their own argument is coming back to bite them right where it counts because they're accusing Jesus of casting out demons by Satan's power. And yet their followers were apparently casting out demons themselves. And that's not like, that's not that, uh, that's not out of the question that that was happening. There is some extra biblical literature that describes these elaborate rituals that were used to, to supposedly to exercise demons. You know, they would they would burn certain herbs. They would um, bury, uh, 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 submerge people in water, and um, you can read a little bit about this in um, the the non canonical book of Tobit. Sorry if you're a Roman Catholic, but Tobit does not belong in Scripture, um, uh, not in the canon. Tobit chapter eight verses two and three, and. Um, I mean, that's sorry. I shouldn't just throw stuff like that out. There's, I am convinced that Tobit does not belong in scripture. It was not recognized as canon, but nevertheless, um, the, the Jewish people, you know, did have these rituals. So Tobit was an important book. It's just, I just don't believe it was God inspired. Okay. Don't, don't, uh, hoist me on my own petard. All right. Um, so, uh, so Jesus is entering into their worldview and then he, and he's, he's saying, look guys, by your own standard, by your own argumentation, if I'm working for Satan, your disciples are working for Satan as well. 
You want to go down that road? Who taught them? You? Are you telling me you're working for Satan as well? Are we all just working for Satan here? I don't think so. You guys are absurd. You're a joke. All right, so he enters into their worldview and masterfully just judos them, just flips them around, gets submission, man. You can tell I've been starting on uh, jujitsu lately, I know. Um, I'm in the cage stage of jujitsu. Some people are cage stage Calvinists. Yes, I've been there. Uh, right now I'm a cage stage jujitsu player. All right, um, step two then. This is coming from verse, verses 28 and 29. It says this, Jesus says, if I drive out demons by the spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. How can someone enter a strong man's house and steal his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man? Then he can plunder his house. Now, what Jesus is doing is he's transitioning. Do you see the transition? In step one, I'll go back. In step one, it says, knowing their thoughts. Look at that. Knowing their thoughts. In other words, Jesus knows what they're thinking and he's going to enter into their line of thinking for the sake of argument. Now he's inviting them to come into his way of thinking for the sake of argument and saying, imagine that my worldview, that my message is true and I am casting out demons, driving out demons by the spirit of God. Then that has implications. And now why, why would that be part of Christ's, of Jesus's worldview, of his message? It's because Jesus was anointed with the Holy Spirit in Matthew 3.16. That's not that long ago. That's only nine chapters earlier. And so Jesus is clearly operating uh, in the power of the Holy Spirit. And so what Jesus is doing is he's saying, look, there's this cohesive picture here. I've been anointed by the Holy Spirit, and now I'm operating by the Holy Spirit, and I'm driving out demons by the power of the Holy Spirit. And if that's the case, and it is, by the way, but if that's the case, then there are implications of that. See, Jesus also had resisted Satan, hadn't he? Go back to Matthew 4, 1 through 11. Jesus was tempted in the wilderness. And you know what the Bible says? In James chapter 4, verse 7, it says, Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. And what happened in verse 11 of chapter 4 of Matthew? Jesus had successfully resisted Satan, and the devil left him. He fled. So Jesus has, has um, overpowered Satan because if Satan can't tempt Jesus, he has zero power over him. That is how Satan operates. He tempts us to sin. How did he tempt? How did he, how did he get control over Adam and Eve? He tempted them. He's trying to get, he was trying to get control over Jesus and Jesus overpowered him. So the, the, um, the, the, message that Jesus is presenting here is, look, I'm anointed by the Holy Spirit. Um, I've already resisted Satan. I, he's fa- Satan has failed. The messianic prophecies are being fulfilled. The ones that say that the, the mute will speak and the deaf will hear and um, the blind will see. And then Jesus states what, what really ought to be obvious to anyone. Only someone stronger than Satan could actually plunder him. Jesus refers to Satan as a strong man. And he says, if you're going to rob a strong man, what are you going to do? What, what do you have to do first? You're going to, walk, you're going to waltz into his house? No, he's going to tear you limb from limb. You've got to go in first and bind him up. You've got to tie him up. Think about Samson being, um, being uh, 
uh, you know, they, they, they tried to tie him up with those, uh, you know, the, the different uh, uh, flax and, and the different things they tried to uh, tie up Samson with, and he busted right through them. Um, but when, uh, when Samson had his strength removed, then he could be bound up, and then they, uh, the Philistines gouged out his eyes. Okay, you have to, you have to overpower the strong man first before you can do what you want with him before you can, in this case, plunder him. So if Jesus is going to overpower Satan, he has to be stronger than Satan. So Jesus is presenting a cohesive worldview, a cohesive message in which he's anointed by the Holy Spirit. He is, uh, Satan might be called master of the house, but Jesus is the master of the master of the house. Jesus is the master of the universe. And that worldview fits, doesn't it? That's cohesive. You don't have this contradictory nonsense like the Pharisees were peddling. All right, then you go to step three, which is really, this is the ultimatum. Jesus presents an ultimatum to the Pharisees in verse 30. Here's what he says. Anyone who is not with me is against me, and anyone who does not gather with me scatters. Jesus is stating one of the most powerful and important principles for us to remember as apologists, giving an answer for the, uh, the reason for the hope that is within us. There is no neutrality. There is no middle space between God and the devil, belief and unbelief, faith and not trusting in Jesus. There is no neutrality. Jesus completely removes the possibility of neutrality from the picture. And, and um, that, that's clear in this encounter, isn't it? You've got people who are opposing Jesus, and then you've got Jesus who is opposing them. I mean, the whole thing is set up like, a, like, a, a, like this apologetic battle. And, you know, this is a very powerful principle to know. And as an apologist, it's very powerful to know this, this particular verse um, because you're going to run into people who claim to be neutral towards Jesus. You've probably met them. You've probably met people who say something along the lines of, you know what? I think Jesus was a good teacher. I think he was a good guy. Uh, Might have been a miracle worker. Maybe sent from God. But, you know, that's as far as it goes for me. Uh, I don't need a savior. I'm good. Kind of like Donald Trump had said, uh, I don't see the need to repent. I don't, he does that accordion thing with his hands. I don't see the need to repent of my sins. You know, I've never seen that need. And it's like, Listen, man, you're either all in or you're all out. Uh, I was on the streets of New Orleans back in February, and I met a guy, young dude, 25 years old, and we were talking about what he believes. And I'm trying to ask him a lot of questions, and he tells me that he he struck me as a rather open-minded dude. But then he, he tells me he's good with Jesus. He doesn't trust in Jesus, but he's he's... He's fine towards Jesus. And I'm like, all right, so, so you know, you're kind of neutral towards Jesus, right? And then I, I told him, I said, do you know that Jesus says whoever's not with him is against him? And anyone who does not gather with him scatters? And the guy's demeanor instantly changed. And the young man told me, I could never believe someone who told me that, or who says something like that. Could never believe it. And I said, see, you're not neutral towards him. And he said, yeah, but, you know, if... um. 
he went on, he said, yeah, but you know, to make that kind of a claim, he said, if, if Drew Brees, the quarterback made a claim like that, I'd say, you know, you're crazy. And I said, yeah, but Drew, Drew, Drew Brees doesn't claim to be master of the universe. See, that's a universal claim that Jesus is making here. He's claiming to be the master of the master of the house, stronger than the strong man. He's claiming to be the son of David, the Messiah, the ruler. You cannot be neutral towards somebody like that. So that young man did see he, he really wasn't neutral towards Jesus. And he walked away with a better understanding than he approached me with of exactly how he actually felt and how he thought about Jesus. And so to oppose Jesus, if you're not with Jesus, you're against him. But remember, Jesus is the one opposing Satan. Jesus is binding up the strong man and stealing from him. And by the way, what he's stealing, what he's plundering, those are human souls. He's, he's removing the possessions from his house, from the strong man's house. Those, are, those possessions are people who are possessed by demons. They're demonized. Jesus is opposing the strong man. He's opposing Beelzebul. And if you're opposing Jesus, there's only one other side you can be on because there's no neutrality. You're either with Jesus or you're with the devil. So the choice for the Pharisees, this is the ultimatum that Jesus gives them, the implied ultimatum. Get rescued by Jesus, get plundered out of the devil's house, or share in the devil's fate. There is no neutrality. There is no middle. This is the law of excluded middle at work. It's one of the laws of logic, fundamental laws of logic. A or not A, nothing in between. You're with Jesus or you're with Satan. You can get rescued by Jesus. Or if you oppose Jesus in his rescue mission, you're going to share the same fate as Satan. You cannot admit that Jesus Christ is good and not call him Lord. You have to go away with it. All right, now, let's look at a modern objection because we always want to bring this, um, we, we want to bring this to uh, our modern times and hopefully give you guys something practical that you can go away and use here. Maybe you've heard the objection, Christianity is anti-science, all right? It's, or, or there's different variations, anti-logic, you know, it's illogical, uh, it goes against uh, human flourishing, et cetera, et cetera. Let's look at the accusation that it's anti-science. Okay, now what's the parallel here between anti-science and then what they accuse Jesus of? Well, in our modern times, science is seen as this paragon of of uh, of knowledge you know of truth it's the ultimate way or at least a really good very important wonderful way of gaining truth if you're anti-science nowadays it's tantamount to being to saying that you love lies you know you love fake news you love falsehood you know you see there's sort of this diabolical almost devilish accusation here like if you're anti-science you're anti-truth you're a liar you're the prince of liars you know you're like basically like satan and the accusation is that christianity fits into that role um in other words just like they accuse jesus of being fueled by the very thing they they uh you know the very epitome of evil the very thing that he claimed to oppose the accusation here is that Christ's followers who are following his teachings are being fueled by something that is very harmful to society. Um, 
you know, Christians claim to have all these answers, but they're anti-science. They claim to have the truth, but they oppose science, and science gives us truth. So you see, they're fueled by the very thing that they claim to oppose. All right, hopefully you can see the parallel here. And we're going to try to deal with this like Jesus. We're going to try to refute this like Jesus. Okay, let's go with step one. Step one, we're going to enter into the unbelieving worldview for the sake of argument and expose the absurdity, reduce it to absurdity. Now to do this, let's talk about what science is. So when we're talking science, we're talking about the scientific method, um, which arose from the scientific, the period of the scientific revolution in the early modern period. You think about men like Newton, Tycho Brahe, you know, you might think of Galileo. The scientific revolution, how did that come about? You know, how did the scientific revolution happen? Well, it arose from Christians, yes, these men were Christians, using biblical principles. Think about it. Think about the principles like um, the possibility of inductive reasoning, uh, the the poss- the the um, imp- the absolute necessity of uniformity in nature. the I- The idea that you can do a sample experiment here and a sample experiment there. And under the same conditions, even if you do them at two different times, two different locations, you'll get similar results or that even really it should be the same results. Um, the idea that you can draw conclusions about the whole based on a, an experiment done on only a part of it. These are, these are all presuppositions. They're preconditions for science that we bring. They're not res- the result of science. You have to assume these things before you start doing science. Um, the reality of logic the laws of logic. Mathematics, you know, one plus one has to equal two yesterday, today, and tomorrow for science to work. Um, the possibility of inferring to the best explanation. These are all assumptions that we bring to the table. They're not the product of science. They're preconditions for science. And they all arise out of the biblical worldview, out of scripture. And I'm, I'm saying today, they tacitly assume the truth of scripture, but literally the scientific revolution arose from Christians who believed in these principles because they believed they followed a rational God, the rational God. So if you trust in science, Mr. Skeptic, Mr. Science, uh, science believer, and science arises from historically and relies on anti, supposedly anti-science biblical principles, because remember, Christianity is anti-biblical, I'm sorry, um, anti-science, then you yourselves are basing your trust in science on anti-science. Do you see this? You're turning their accusation right around on themselves. Okay, science came from Christianity. Christianity is anti-science. You trust science. You trust something that arose from anti-science. This is the equivalent of what we're trying to do here is something similar to Jesus showing the Pharisees that if he's working for Satan, they're working for Satan. We're saying, fine, if we're anti-science, then you're anti-science too, because you're assuming all the exact same principles as we are. And those all come from scripture. We believe that there's a God, the God who governs the universe and he's faithful. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God upholds the universe by, the, by his powerful word. In Jesus Christ, all things consist. Um, Jesus is the Logos. 
the the word, the fundamental principle, the logical principle holding the whole universe together. These are Christian principles, and they gave rise to science. Okay, so there's step one. It reduces the argument to absurdity. Step two is this. If Christianity is true, and it's pro-scientific, that doesn't mean that um, you prove Christianity scientifically, but rather Christianity is the necessary assumption for science to work, for science to make sense. Then science, arising as it does from biblical principles, is good. And science is furthermore part of God's revelation. Science is a way of discovering truth about the world. And all throughout Scripture, especially in the Old Testament, we see these um, directions from God, you know, to study the, the works of God, study the world, study the ant, um, you know, conduct inquiry into the world. Science is good, but it's also designed to reveal God. All of creation testifies to the eternal power and the, and the divine nature of God. The more you use science, the more you discover about the world, the more you discover about God. So we're inviting the, the non-believer to come into our worldview and say, if science and Christianity do work together, and actually Christianity does give rise to science and isn't um, anti-science, then, um, then, you know, that, that we have a cohesive worldview here and it actually makes sense. So then what, what will be the equivalent of the, um, of the ultimatum that Jesus, uh, that Jesus gives? So the, the ultimatum would be something like this. Look, there is no neutrality. There's no neutrality. You can't, um, take the scientific principles the preconditions for science, which arise from belief in the triune God of Scripture, as revealed in Scripture, you can't take those principles and say those principles are good. We want to keep those principles. But deny the God who grounds those principles and explains them. In other words, you can't take part of Scripture and deny the rest of it. You can't take the principles that you want and and um, eschew the principles you don't want. Now, to smash all that together and, and, and make this pretty quick, if you want science, you need Jesus. If you want science, you need to believe the gospel. You're either with Jesus or you're against him. You're, you either get science and you get Jesus or you don't get either one. So this idea that Christianity is anti-science um, can be pretty easily refuted because science needs Jesus and uh, Jesus is at the heart of Christianity and Christian beliefs. So, um, I'm, I, I, I want to leave it there. We're going to take questions in a minute, but hopefully we can see that this accusation that Christianity is fueled by ignorance, uh, anti-science, um, anti-truth, anti-knowledge ideas, it, it, it falls apart. It falls apart, and, and um, hopefully we'll be able to you know, show that in our apologetic encounters.